Well, good morning. You know, a few years back, just a few days before Christmas, uh, my wife Patty and I were sitting down across from a pediatric neurologist after a routine checkup when he said the words that we feared the most. Your son's, Daniel's, brain tumor has returned. And with those words, it was as if God picked us up and put us on a path we had been on before, but never wanted to go down again. You see, two years earlier, our son Daniel had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was about the size of an egg. It was located in the back of the brain against the most eloquent parts of the brain, the cerebellum and the brain stem. And we had it removed through surgery, and Daniel had done remarkably well. But now it was back. Our worst fears had materialized. What do you do when you come face to face with something you fear? You know, all the directives given in the Bible, do you know which directive is repeated most often? It's the command, fear not. Now, it comes in different flavors with different nuances. Do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. Don't be scared. There's the positive aspect of it. Be strong and courageous. It makes you wonder why God is so preoccupied with fear, doesn't it? I mean, I can think of worse things that we shouldn't do, like... Hate our neighbor. And then there is greed and lust and murder. I mean, even lying should be considered worse than simply being scared. Why is God so fixated on fear? Well, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, we'll find out together. And notice how Mark begins. He says, On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other small boats were also with him. Did you notice the unusual way Mark introduces this passage? He says, On the same day. On what day? Well, it was the same day that Jesus had the ugly confrontation with the um, religious leaders and they accused him of being demon-possessed, which, by the way, happened to be the same day. He had the emotional confrontation with his mom and brothers who'd come to the, the house that was filled with people wanting to take Jesus with them home because they thought Jesus was nuts which happened to be the same day he left that crowded house. He walks toward the sea, and along the way he begins speaking to his disciples cryptically in parables, which happened to be the same day he returned to the house, and then left the house, went down to where the boats were, and he delivered two parables about the kingdom of God. Now, it was on that day that Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. You see, I think Mark is telling us that this has been an exhausting day. 
I mean, the crowds have gathered, jostling Jesus wherever they went. They're pressing and pushing on Him, demanding that they be heard, they be seen, they be healed. And now Jesus is worn out. He's exhausted. The day is coming to a close. And He looks at His disciples. He said, let's go to the other side. And so they get in a boat and they go to the other side. You can see the path the boat took with the green line on the map there. They leave Capernaum in the northwest and they travel to the southeast about a distance of five miles. But what I think is interesting is how Mark describes the journey. Did you notice? He said, and they took Jesus along in the boat as he was. In other words... There wasn't time for Jesus to collect any provisions. He, he didn't have time to change his clothes. They left their knapsacks behind, so to speak. And as soon as Jesus finishes speaking, he says, let's leave now immediately. And it's as if Jesus is trying to get away from all the people. Now, Jesus and the disciples probably took one of uh, Peter, James, John, or Andrew's boats, they were professional fishermen, and according to archaeological discoveries around the Sea of Galilee, a, a typical fishing boat was about uh, 27 feet in length. It was about 7 feet wide, and uh, it had decks both fore and aft. You can see that in the picture there. It was propelled by four oarsmen, and there were two on each side, and a boat this size could hold anywhere between 12 and 15 individuals as they made their way. But but notice Mark indicates to his readers that they didn't leave alone. Notice he records other little boats were also with him. In other words, if Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds, it's not working. I mean, they're following Him on land. They're following Him on the sea. They are not giving Him any peace at all. It is as if Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. And so He leaves in the boat. Look at verse 37. Notice what happens next. And a great, a great windstorm arose and... The winds, or the waves, beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. So Jesus sets out, and the disciples set out on what was probably a calm Middle Eastern evening. And they begin their journey to the other side. But Jesus is exhausted, so he decides to curl up in the in the rear of the boat on a cushion and he takes a nap. And somewhere in this five-mile journey, they encounter a storm, a sudden, severe storm. Now, now the Sea of Galilee is, is a rather small lake. It's not as big as our Great Lakes. In fact, it's only 13 miles north to south. And it's only seven miles east to west. It's rather small, but the Sea of Galilee is known for its sudden change in weather. You see, the sea uh, is located about 
700 feet below sea level. And then the, the mountains and the hills on the eastern side, they, they tend to rise uh, from the shore all the way up to what is called today the Golan Heights. Now, when the wind changes direction and comes from the northeast, climatologists tell us that the geography of the area funnels the cold, uh, dry air from the mountains down to the valley all the way down until it clashes with the warm, moist air of the lake, forcing the warm, moist air up quickly, creating sudden fierce storms on the lake. They have them even to this day. And this must have been one of those storms. I mean, if you've ever been on a lake in the middle of a storm, you know somewhat of the panic the disciples must be feeling right here. But you need to know this was no ordinary storm. I mean, even the veteran fishermen, the men who spent their entire lives on the lake, are scared to death. And to make matters worse, it seems Jesus has directed them in this direction when he said, let's go to the other side. Notice what happens next, verse 38. And, and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, I think it's interesting to notice that the words of the disciples seem to indicate that Jesus must have been awake when the storm began. I mean, if he had been asleep and not known about the storm, the disciples would have awakened him and informed him about the storm. But instead of informing Jesus, the disciples accused Jesus of indifference. Notice what it says. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It seems as if in the midst of this great danger building, Jesus doesn't pitch in to help. Instead, he goes to the rear of the boat and he decides to take a nap. No wonder the disciples are accusing him of indifference. I mean, have you ever felt like that? I mean, you faced a troubling situation and you call out to God and he is silent. It's like he's not there or he is not interested. I mean, it's like he's asleep or his attention is focused someplace else. You know, after getting the news of Daniel's tumor returning, Patty and I were scared to death. We've done enough research to know that a reoccurring tumor increased the probability of more tumors in the future. And so our minds were just racing. How many of these would he face in his lifetime? What if one of them isn't caught early enough? And so we were wrestling with fear. And... Wrestling with the unknown for Daniel and his future. And we were reeling so much that we just found ourselves on our knees calling out to God for help. And then a couple of days later, Patty's mom, Lucy, ends up going to the doctor for a routine check. And they find a spot on her lungs. Now, uh, Lucy had 
um, breast cancer 26 years earlier, and she survived. And then 16 years after that, she had colon cancer, and she survived. A biopsy proved our worst fears. That this was lung cancer. And it was as if Patty and I uh, were begging God for what was going on with Daniel. And it's like God doesn't hear anything we said. And now it's as if we're lying on the ground asking God and He's now kicking us in the gut. It felt worse than I'd ever experienced in my life. And then a few days later, our son Josh... He comes in, he's complaining of a stomach ache, and we just figured it was a stomach virus, but it didn't subside. It continued the next day and the next. We waited another 24 hours. Then we found ourselves in a third hospital, uh, this time with an appendicitis. They told us we'd have surgery immediately, and we waited and waited and waited and waited Nothing happened. Another 24 hours went by. No surgery. The pain was intensifying. Uh, I feared the worst. I called a surgeon friend of mine, told him what was going on, asking what we should do. He said, get him out of there immediately. Don't wait. He's got to have surgery right now. And he agreed to meet us in a fourth hospital. But it wasn't in time. The appendix had begun to rupture. We all go through times in life when we call out to God and it's as if He doesn't hear. If He's not, it's as if He's not listening. And at times like that, the indifference of Jesus can be maddening in our lives. And I want you to look back at the passage. I think it's worth noting that the presence of Jesus in the boat doesn't prevent the storm from developing, does it? And by the way, the presence of Jesus in our lives doesn't mean we'll always sail through calm waters either. I mean, sometimes God brings storms in our lives because, well, they're just consequences to our sin. Uh, sometimes He brings a storm in our life because of the consequence to someone else's sin. Like your boss, his business goes bankrupt because of his mismanagement and you lose your job. Sometimes difficulties enter our lives because they're lessons we need to learn. Sometimes they enter our lives for no other reason than we, we live in a sin-cursed world. But for whatever reason, difficulties enter our lives. God promises He'll use those difficulties to grow us, to mature us. In fact, there's a story of a little boy who was fascinated watching a butterfly emerged from its cocoon. He watched for several hours as it, uh, it pushed and struggled against its constraints. Being a little impatient and wanting to help the butterfly, the little boy decided to take out his penknife and ever so carefully he began cutting the cocoon, careful not to touch the butterfly. And when he'd finished, what emerged was a beautiful butterfly that climbed up on the top of the cocoon, he stretched his wings, and he died. Why? Because he wasn't given the opportunity to go through the struggle. 
You see, what God had worked in the cocoon is a process of struggle to strengthen the butterfly's muscles, his wings, his heart, so that butterfly could do what it was designed to do. Soar. And what God has worked in the cocoon for the butterfly, you see, he works into life for you and me. In other words, when it feels like God is indifferent, that he doesn't care, it's not that God is not acting on our behalf, but he is beginning to weave his story. His story in and through our lives. You see, over the years I've discovered that God's ambiguity through whatever fearful situation we encounter, it creates space. It always creates space for Him to emerge and for us as well. I mean, if God, if He responded to our prayers like a magic prayer answering machine, Given us what we want, when we want it, there would be no room for discovery, would there? There would be no room for relationship. You see, what matters in life is not really the storms we face, but the fact that we don't face them alone. I want you to notice what happens next in the passage, verse 39, And then he arose and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I mean, this storm was so violent that the veteran fishermen feared for their lives. So they went and awakened Jesus. And when they did, uh, they said to him, Do you not even care that we are perishing? I want you to notice Jesus doesn't respond to them at all. Instead, he speaks to the wind. Notice, he rebukes the wind. By the way, this is the same word Jesus used uh, when he rebuked the demonic spirit that was interrupting his discourse in the synagogue in Capernaum in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is not speaking to the elements per se as much as he's speaking to the power that's driving those elements. And most commentators agree that this storm was so violent that it must have been demonically induced and encouraged. So he rebukes the wind, but notice, secondly, he speaks to the sea. He says, peace be still. Literally in the Greek, it's hush, be muzzled. And then immediately the winds, the winds stop immediately and the sea calms instantly. Now, if you've ever been on a lake in the midst of a storm, you can, you know that the wind can stop just as quickly as it began, but it takes time for the waves to calm down, doesn't it? But not here. In the text, They calm immediately. It's as if Jesus is suppressing them immediately. I mean, look how Mark describes it. He says it was a great calm. And through it all, it's as if God has just parted the curtain for a brief second and allowing the disciples to see a glimpse of this man's power, Jesus' power over nature. But what I want you to notice is the question Jesus asked the disciples. 
Why are you so fearful? Now, don't you think that's a strange question to ask a group of men who've been caught in a life-threatening storm with a boat, boat tossed here and there, filling rapidly with water? I mean, who wouldn't be fearful? But I want you to notice this question, Jesus asked it in order to focus attention on the real issue, what's really going on in the text. You see, the great danger the disciples faced was not from the wind and the waves. There was a far greater danger that they were completely oblivious to. The greater danger was their lack of faith. Their lack of rest and trust in God. Which really brings us back to the original question I asked. Of all the directives in the Bible, why is the command to fear not repeated most often? Well, I think one reason might be that fear paralyzes us. It keeps us from seeing things accurately. It keeps us from seeing the deeper, more fundamental things in life. In fact, I want to see if you can notice what I'm talking about in this video of my wife when she was a little girl. Watch the screen. You see, Patty was just three years old when her dad was encouraging her to jump off the dock at their lake home in northern Wisconsin. Could you detect any hesitancy in that little girl? I mean, everything within her was saying, stay on the dock where it's safe. I mean, the water is deep, it's cold, it's dangerous. I've never done this before. Not to mention, I can't swim. You see, fear was keeping Patty from enjoying a summer of fun and frolic at the lake. But did you also notice there was a, a more significant issue going on? A more fundamental issue. Did you see it? It was a foundational issue. What Patty was wrestling with was can she trust her dad? Would he catch her? Would he protect her? Faith said jump. Fear said no. You see, what Patty's dad was trying to teach his three-year-old fearful daughter was that you can do this, honey. You can trust me. I'll catch you. You will always be safe in my arms. But if Patty never jumps, she'll never know, will she? Her dad can't do it for her. He can't make her do it. She's got to do it herself. And that's going to require faith. Maybe some of you just this week have received some unpleasant news about a medical report. And God is looking you in the eye and He's saying, will you jump to me? Or, or, or maybe it, it's an unwelcome change in employment. And God's saying, will you jump? 
or it might be a discouraging fertility report or an unwelcome comment from a wayward child. And God is looking you in the eye and he's saying, you can trust me. Will you jump to me? You see, the reason, the bigger reason I think God has so many prohibitions against fear is because fear disrupts faith. It always disrupts faith. Fear and trust, they're polar opposite. I mean, fear is, on the, is diametrically opposed to faith. And without trust, you cannot have any kind of depth of relationship. Did you know every relationship depends upon trust? I mean, can you imagine a couple saying, we want to go deeper in our relationship with each other, but we don't trust each other? It's impossible. Can you imagine a child climbing up into someone's lap they don't trust? It won't happen. You see, trust is the foundation of every relationship. You can't have a relationship without trust. And what God wants more than our obedience in life is our trust. Our trust. Did you know it's possible to obey God and not trust Him? Now, you won't have a close relationship with God. You won't have a depth of the relationship. But you can... Obey Him and not trust Him, but it's impossible to trust God and not want to obey Him. You see, at the core of all our disobedience in life is really a mistrust of the nature of God and His intention toward us. So throughout the Bible, you have God coaxing His timid children, His fearful three-year-olds, Trust me, and you can face Pharaoh. Trust me, and you can lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Trust me, and you can go up against that giant Goliath. If you trust me, you can have joy sitting in a prison after being beaten within an inch of your life. But you're going to have to trust me. You see, when we trust God, when we persist, when we hang in there during times of ambiguity, it opens a door to know God better, more thoroughly, more deeply. In fact, that is how intimacy grows in any kind of relationship, human or divine. You see, the ambiguity of Jesus in our lives is really an invitation to trust, isn't it? To trust Him in the midst of the unknown. But what I want you to notice is what happens next in the passage. After watching Jesus calm the wind and the waves, look at verse 41. It says, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Now, now I want you to know the word fear here is different from the word used in the preceding verse when Jesus said, why are you so fearful? He was saying there, why are you acting so cowardly? But this word is a different Greek word. This word uh, carries with it the sense of awe and respect, a deep abiding wonder and love. So 
As a result, notice what they say. Who can this be? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Do you see it? Do you see how Jesus' apparent indifference, his ambiguity in this most frightening situation has now opened the door for the disciples to see him clearer and to go deeper in their relationship with him? That's the beauty of God's ambiguity. Without ambiguity, there'll be no discovery. There's no depth of relationship. In fact, several years ago, a movie came out about a little bear cub and its mom. Maybe you saw it. A tragedy hit early on in the movie, and the mom is killed, and the bear cub is on his own, and you wonder if the bear is going to, cub is going to survive. It doesn't look likely. And then the most unlikely thing happens. The little bear cub is befriended by a giant Kodiak bear. And the big bear teaches the little bear how to be a bear. Everything the big Kodiak does, the little bear emulates. I mean, the little bear wades into a stream and and stabs at the fish. Why? Because he's seen the big Kodiak do that. The, the, The little bear rises up on its hind legs, scratches his back on a tree because that's what the big Kodiak does. And as the movie progresses, you get the feeling that the young bear is going to make it. There is hope for this little fellow. And then they're separated. The cub can't find the Kodiak, and he wanders off. And that's when you learn that a mountain lion has been watching their interaction for days, weeks, months. You've seen him in a distance. Now you see him up close. He sees his opportunity uh, to attack. He, he takes advantage. He comes swiftly, quickly. The little cub is scared to death. He runs, but the mountain lion is too fast. And so they meet face to face on a broken log over a creek. Watch the screen. You see, the young cub had no idea who had been watching him, but the big Kodiak had been there all along. You see, when we encounter fearful situations in our lives, we tend to get our attention riveted on the fearful situation that keeps coming at us, and we can't see the one who's been there all along. You see, this story is in the Bible to remind us that we are under the watchful care of a great big God. His arms are very strong. He's not dropped anyone yet. And He won't drop you. Will you jump to Him? Father, thank You. Thank You for the reminder that You are there. And Your apparent indifference and the ambiguity of life that comes our way is only there to cause us to move in closer to You, to find You as the great big God with the strong arms that You are. May we be reminded of this story time and time again as we face fearful things in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I I just want to remind you, or to tell you, uh, my mother-in-law is doing fine. 
She's 90 years old, lives here in the Cincinnati area, and not many people can be a three-time cancer survivor. Uh, my son Josh did have his appendix removed, and it had, had ruptured, and he had to live with the pump for some time to pump the infection out. But he recovered completely, and next month he'll finish his uh, fellowship as a pediatric cardiologist over at Children's Hospital in Cincinnati. And my son Daniel never had a, a third tumor occur. That surgery was successful, but he does have complications known as a syrinx in his spine that we are monitoring. But that would save you asking questions and me answering. <laughs> so if you do have any other questions you'd like to ask, we'd love to meet you in the hearth room. Drop by and ask them down there. If you came prepared to give... Offering boxes are out the door and to the left. Thanks for coming. Enjoy this great day.